Sunday mornings this term, we're in Matthew 8 to 10, the series, Confidence in the Mission of the King. Confidence in the Mission of the King. What we need in evangelism and in mission is confidence, not in our own strength, ability, rhetoric, argument, uh, conviction, personality, any of that stuff, but confidence in the mission of the one uh, whose mission it is, the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 34. More amazing facts about the Lord Jesus that Matthew records in his eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry. Chapter 8, verses 18 to 34. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the lake. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep, Jesus. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd crushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now turn forward to the very end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus commissioned to all his followers, page 835. This uh, is the, the commission that uh, overarches the whole gospel, and our section is to give us confidence for confidence in Jesus for this. Jesus came and said to them and to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given uh, to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let me just re-paraphrase that. Go, therefore, into this community. Yesterday, somebody, and I think this takes a lot of bottle. Somebody took 500 leaflets and walked up and down Morningside Road all yesterday, handing them out. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. 
Go to your neighbors. Invite them. For the stakes are high. All eternity. But go on this basis. That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus whose mission it is. And go on this basis. Behold, I am with you. In mission. Always. To the very end of the age. Now the Lord's commission This commission at the end of Matthew's gospel is to every Christian and to every Christian church. Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10 prepare us for mission and for evangelism. They teach us two things. First, that it is Jesus' mission we are engaged in. You and I are not ever the prime player. We are privileged participants in his mission. We are not sent into mission or evangelism for Jesus, That's a a kind of rhetoric we often use, but it's not true. We are not sent into mission and evangelism for him as much as we are sent into mission and evangelism with him. Now, with that in mind, the second thing Matthew teaches us in these chapters 8, 9, and 10 is about the authority of the king. And because this is eyewitness testimony, he shows us We see, we observe the authority of Jesus. And this gives us confidence as we take up our commission to mission and evangelism. Not, as I said, confidence in our own commitment, convictions, eloquence, strategies. It's not even, you see, confidence in our own commitment, confidence in our own desire to do it. It's confidence in him all the way, in his mission. It's like walking up and down the street, handing out flyers, having the confidence that in people's lives and hearts that you do not know because you've never seen them before, there is stuff going on in life. Think of us this morning in this room. Think of the stuff going on in our life. And think of the the possibilities when an invitation to the answer to the biggest questions of life is given to you on the street. And somebody goes home and they say, how on earth... Did that coincidence happen? Maybe only a few. Now let's look then at the authority of Jesus. Four headings this morning. Following Jesus in his mission is costly. Following Jesus in his mission is costly. Verses 18 to 22. Let's read them again. Follow with me in your Bibles. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. These are easy words to say, aren't they? I will follow you wherever you go. You could say that if you support a football team. I will follow you wherever you go until you start losing. Some people do follow football teams wherever they go. Real supporters. The kind of supporters who get hacked off when it comes to a cup final and all of a sudden another 25,000 pitch up. I will follow you wherever you go. Easy words. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, don't Well, be shocked a little by what Jesus says. This is the authority of the King of Kings. The hallmark of true discipleship, a true follower of Jesus, is cost. 
There are consequences of following Jesus, always. There are demands and difficulties. There is a different life, a life of suffering, of giving up for the sake of Jesus and his mission. Let me just repeat that. And this is not an exceptional thing. This is not something that maybe happened. This is the norm. There are consequences of following Jesus individually in your lives or corporately as churches, demands, difficulties, a different life, a life of suffering, of giving up for the sake of Jesus and his mission in the kingdom now. In the kingdom to come, when Jesus returns, there will be no cost. We tend to think of there will be no sin and there will be no sickness and there will be no crying and there will be no pain, but there will be no cost of discipleship anymore. You will not be that lone person on Morningside Road handing out invitations to a church anymore. You will not be the only person in your street or workplace Anymore. You will not be the half a dozen kids in your high school that have the bottle to pitch up at an SU group and be laughed at when they go every Wednesday lunchtime. Anymore. Following Jesus in his mission is costly. Let me articulate it in a different way. You are a Christian. You have become a Christian in your family who are not Christians. Now that is costly. There are consequences. There are things you have to do in life or say no to or say yes to as a Christian. Because you are a Christian. That are costly. 1.63 million pounds is a lot of money. What could you have spent that on? What could we have spent it on? There is a cost. There's a real cost. Now, let's look at the detail of this a little bit. Verse 18. Following Jesus means a life without ease and comfort. When Jesus saw the crowd, he gave orders to go over, and a scribe came to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And a wonderful... Uh, Response from Jesus, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, that travels 2,000 years, and we understand it still. Foxes have holes. We even know that as city people. We see foxes in our gardens. Foxes have somewhere to sleep at night. The birds of the air have nests to rest in, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, nowhere to lay his head down at night. It's a powerful image that Jesus uses to convey what it's like to be a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus. Foxes have holes to live in at night, birds have nests, even animals have somewhere they can call home, but the Son of Man has nowhere to call home on this earth, really. The Son of Man to whom all authority has been given has nowhere to lay his head. Now, Jesus in his own life was an exile, a stranger in the world, on a mission that grates with the world around him. It was a costly mission that necessitated the loss of human comforts and security. A costly mission that very often led him to get into a boat, to get to the other side, to get away from the people who were after him. 
Question, are we prepared practically to give up human comforts and security, money, possessions, homes, if so required, for the sake of following him, for the sake of the gospel? Many do, especially in other parts of the world, and that's different. But there is, in the Western world now, physical, financial, material costs to being a Christian. Would we? Yes. Let me encourage you that the answer for you as a church is yes. Why do you do it? Because you love Jesus and will follow him wherever, whatever, whenever. Or are we prepared to give up our identity in something else? Our work, our career, our reputation, our friends, our family for identity. There's a, a kind of preacher's line, isn't it? Are we prepared to give up our identity and our work, our career, our reputation, our family, whatever it is, for Jesus? And, and it kind of is a throwout rebuke, but it's not meant to be. Just think of, think of where we invest our identity. Am I prepared to give up my identity as a, as a, as a preacher, as a church leader. Am I prepared to give up my identity as a church leader, which has been successful, which is training people, which has gathered a lot of money? You know, these money facts, when you communicate them, have as much risk in them for Jesus. For Jesus. Are you prepared to give up your identity and your work, your job, whatever it is, or your kids, or, or whatever it is, or, or your reputation for Jesus? You know what the issues and battles are in your life. Will we follow him as individuals and as a church if that means conflict? I mean, who seeks conflict? Only nutters. It's like... People who relish in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Nobody does. But if you follow Jesus, if you say to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And to follow him is to follow him wherever he goes. Means difficulty. Words are one thing. Actions that are consequent upon them, quite another. Following Jesus means a life without ease and comfort. I've been struck with this with Andy and Kyrie, and I don't want to embarrass them, but it is true. I mean, it is striking to me how many costs and consequences there are of moving from a place like Stockbridge in Edinburgh to Charleston. I mean, it's a big deal. Because there's no gospel church. That's great. And I know it's not time yet for us, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's very striking. The dominant question that people are asking me when they become members of this church here, and lots of you are, which is encouraging, is when are we going to plan a church? Almost everybody has asked that. As soon as we possibly can. Not in a daft way, so, you know, we, we, we're struggling financially to do it, but we'll do it as soon as we possibly can. Just look that way south in the city, you might even turn your head. <laughs> That's south, I think. Between here and the bypass. 
180,000 people. Two living churches. All it needs is 40 of us just to go. We will as soon as we can. And that might mean giving up our identity in this church family which we love. And of course there are costs, aren't there? Costs. Real costs for following Jesus. Um, the focus in verse 21 is on another would-be disciple. Jesus' intention is to set out and cross to the other side of the lake. Presumably, he's heard this other fellow say to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And his response to Jesus is, Lord, will you let me go and bury my father? Now, that is not an unreasonable request. I mean, let's face up to the reality of what it, it's not unreasonable, is it? Jesus' response is the unreasonable statement. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What do we make of this? Jesus is deliberately shocking in his teaching in order to emphasize the absolute authority that he has to call us to what he will. It is very tempting, and you would be tempting if you were standing here to explain away the radical nature of his teaching, to say he didn't mean what he said. He did mean what he said in this occasion. Like many Christians today, he didn't see the urgency of what it was like that Jesus had come to do, and so he thought that he could simply tack his discipleship on to all the other seemingly important and vital priorities of the day. Following Jesus in his mission, individually or corporately as a church, means a life of unqualified commitment. If he says go, we go. If he says come, we come. Why? Because he has all the authority of God. Now, if ever you feel that the authority of Jesus in these chapters strikes you with a, a, a power and a, and, a, and a demand of the king, then you're right. But always remember that the one who speaks with such power and demands of our life is the one who laid down his life that we might be able to follow him. Many promise too much too soon, some too little too late, and are found wanting. And the shocking thing is that Jesus gets into the boat and he goes on with his mission, with or without us. Now that does not mean to say that in all, in the end of the day, when judgment day comes, that you will not be in the new creation. God is gracious and if there is a genuine living faith in our hearts, he will save us. But let's not get to that day and live with regret in our life. So many of you have been praying for us as a family. We have really close friends in Japan, the person who directs the work of OMF and died this week after a year's battle with leukemia. You'll see his sons from here from time to time. We're godparents to the kids. And it's striking that, that, that there's, a, there's real grief at that man's death in his early 50s you know, as head of OMF in Japan. But what a full life he has led. Taking his family lock, stock and barrel when these kids were all under five to Japan to live, to learn the language, to plant churches. And his kids stood up at the funeral and said, look, 
What a life of commitment. Is it worth it? A hundred percent. hundred percent. Because seeing men and women reconciled to God is worth it with an eternity ahead of us in the new creation. So do not. And what a wonderful thing it is for me as minister to look out at you and to see your sacrificial giving. Because what good is it in this world if we build castles to live in? What good is it? What good is it? Now, Secondly, thirdly, and fourthly, and much more quickly, following Jesus in his mission is costly. It is also dangerous. Here's a great recruitment sermon. It's costly. It's dangerous. It's like following Hibs. But wonderfully victorious. It's dangerous. And when Jesus got into the boat, that is with those who did go with him, His disciples followed him, disciples who were prepared to follow him on his terms, a life without ease and comfort, a life of unqualified commitment. That's what they signed up to, and they were prepared for it. And, you know, you've signed up for it. There's a boy in the church. He's a boy, I think, because I'm 48 today, and he's half my age, so he's a boy. He signed up for this. Now, it's wonderful that he's become a Christian, and it's real in his life. But this past week, he's told his family. And his friends. In the silence. But this is what he signed up for. Don't tell him. <laughs> he knows. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Following Jesus led them into a furious storm. The word for storm in Matthew is unusual. It is more commonly used to refer to an earthquake. It is a vivid word and reinforced with the adjective furious, which conveys the strength of the storm and the heights of danger. The storm was such that the boat was being swamped by the waves, covered by the waves. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where a storm is described in such terms. It might mean the waves were smashing against the boat. It might mean that the boat was in uh, the trough between the waves that towered above them, submerging it from you. But it doesn't mean that, I don't think. And Matthew's got an Old Testament scriptures in this hand, or this hand and his pen in the other. The sea in scripture is synonymous with a fallen nature, fallen creation, the haunt of evil, the abode of the devil. We see that in the Psalms, wisdom and prophetic writing. And that's what I think Matthew has in his mind here. Why? Because the episode that immediately follows it, the demon-possessed men, the destructive power of the devil in their lives, and here in the storm in the lake, we are meant to understand this as spiritual attack. Now, is that stretching the text of Scripture too far? No, because, verse 26, Jesus got up, rose up, and we have the translation rebuked. The word in the Greek is exorcised or cast out. Cast out the fury from the storm. The same word as he uses to exercise demons. The word rebuke means casting out of a demon or repelling an even force. So Matthew has in mind here spiritual. Now what a coup it would be for the devil, for Satan. If right at the start of Jesus' ministry, right at the start, when these 12 people are prepared to give up everything for him and to go with him, into the storm that is his mission in the world, if the devil on day one could wipe them out, 
or let me just be much more real, what a cure it would be for this young man who has got into the boat with Jesus in his mission, that if the devil could wipe his testimony out in the first month of his Christian life. Now, following Jesus means cost. It means a life without ease and comfort, a life of unqualified commitment. Are we prepared for that? Yes. And equally, do we believe that spiritual opposition, spiritual attack is real? Are we surprised when the storm comes? Should we be? The devil knows our every weakness. He will do what he can to discourage us. He will do what he can to disunite us. He will do what he can to hinder gospel progress. Now, we always knew that Andy and Kyrie would get a house in Charleston. I think probably in our hearts we always believe that. But it's always on the wire, isn't it? All the time. And the opposition is real and the antagonism is real. Spiritual attack is real all the time. But not, not in the kind of well, there are churches in the boat that is Jesus' mission, and there are Christians in the boat that is Jesus' mission, and there are churches that might say they're in the boat that is Jesus' mission, but are plainly not, and there are people who say they're Christians, but are not in the boat, but on the shore, where it's safe, you know, it's safe to stand on the shore and watch the storm. And one of the things that I, if I'm really honest, often would long for, is to be a minister of a church where there is no spiritual opposition. That would be great, wouldn't it? It really would be nice. But then there would be no life. And there would be no conversions. And when you had a building project, you'd have one of these silly nanometers outside the church for 200 years with a little red line that goes up and you had coffee mornings and raised 300 pounds. I thought that was wonderful. Now, thirdly, we're getting to the encouraging end. Jesus' mission is his absolute authority over evil. Let's just pause and consider for a moment the authority of Jesus. First in the storm, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm. That's how powerful he is. And remember, the word rebuke signifies combat with the devil. The storm is spiritual attack, spiritual opposition. And the Lord Jesus, with a word, renders the devil impotent, silent. Such is his authority. Now, in a very real sense here, the authority of Jesus, the demonstration of his authority against the fury of the storm, the fury of the devil, evil forces assailed against him in his mission, Jesus stands up, and with a word, there's calm. The next episode, remember eyewitness testimony, just think of the impact this would have had on the disciples. You know, they get out of the boat, and they are keen to, to find a local Greg's or whatever, or a, a subway to have their lunch, and all of a sudden, these two men rush at them from the tombs. And notice the, the two demon-possessed men rush at them. When they came to the other side, the disciples with them, 
Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. They came at Jesus, evil, the devil, against him, spiritual attack. Out of the tombs, notice the link between evil at the heart of a fallen world and death. Notice how dangerous they are, so fierce that no one could pass them by. The devil is dangerous. Peter writes, you know these words, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Sometimes I think when you read that out, we think of a safari. Not like that at all. They're like a roaring lion. And what does a lion do? It looks for someone to devour, to eat, to kill. Back to Matthew, verse 29. Behold, they cried out, what have you come to do with us, O son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? They know who Jesus is. They know that he has come to destroy evil, the devil, the prince of evil who holds this world in his grip. And then look at his demonstration of divine authority over evil. Matthew's focus is not on the restoration of the demon-possessed men like Mark. You know, Mark has they were clothed, sane, and in their right mind. Matthew's not focusing on that. Matthew's focus is on the authority of Jesus over evil and his judgment on evil. How does he judge? He takes the demons into these pigs and they rush down the hill into uh, the water and drown. And what a vivid demonstration of the judgment of God that is. And no wonder the herdsmen fled. No wonder. One of my Bible commentaries suggests that in case there are any pig farmers in the building, we should put some caveats in here. I mean, how pathetic is that? I mean, I... So what? This happens. This is Jesus demonstrating his divine authority. And that same Bible commentator suggests that the people asked Jesus to leave their region because their livelihood was based on pig farming. They asked Jesus to leave that region, as many do, because they will not have his authority in their lives. They will not have the authority of a king as king of kings over their lives. They will not have it, and many will not have it. The reason people in this community that we share the gospel with will say no is not because they... They doubt, in the end, the evidence for the miracles of Jesus. It's not because they doubt that, is they will not have his authority. Notice verse 34, Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. There are two people in this passage who begged Jesus to leave, the demons and the people. Notice the connection between an individual who rejects Jesus and the devil himself, the prince of this world, who lives in their hearts. And it's such a tragedy, such a dangerous thing to do. Now, there is someone I'm meeting with at the moment, praying for, who having been confronted with the authority of Jesus, and having expressed to me their recognition of that authority, and having talked to me of the two occasions in their life, once Uh, 30 years ago, and once in this church during a communion service when they were confronted visibly, physically, emotionally, spiritually with the authority of the King of Kings, they are now saying to me they do not want to know him because of what it means that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life 
And no one comes to the Father but by him. Because of what it means for loved ones who have gone from this world long before. And they said to me, I do not want to know that God. But by God's grace, even when we beg him to leave, we often find he is still there. But not forever. Churches, confronted with the authority of Jesus in his word, want Jesus to leave them alone. Now, they wouldn't say that, but they will not have him on his terms. And Jesus' authority over evil, over the devil, his authority in judgment is scary. We'll see how just how scary it is in Ezekiel this evening. But it takes us to the very heart of Jesus' mission. What is Jesus' mission in the world? You could say it is to save sinners, yes. But another way to express Jesus' mission in the world is his authority over evil. The new creation without tears and sickness and pain and sin and cost is the final vanquishing of evil. And the mission of Jesus in this world, that you are called to be part of, that I am called to be part of, that this church, that Charleston, that other churches, Grace Mount that's just begun is called to be part, is pushing back against the tide of evil. Now, our tide is a stronger tide, but the tide of evil is like a rip current. Gets people. It drags them out to sea to the point where, unless a lifeline is thrown to them, they drown. And every time... A soul is one for Christ. That soul is rested or taken out or a lifeline is thrown to that soul who until that happens is in the grip of the devil. Every church planted for Christ in a community where there is no gospel is one more nail in the devil's coffin. But when you try and hammer a nail into the devil's coffin, he doesn't lie passively. No wonder the opposition is fierce. That's the reality of Jesus' mission in the world. It's costly, it's dangerous, but he has absolute authority over evil. Let me finish with this. Following Jesus in his mission is absolutely uh, safe. Now, where is it safer to be? Now, don't hear this devotionally. We're all aware as a church about real-life Christianity, so don't hear this devotionally or pietistically. Where is it safer to be? On the shore, looking, or out there in the boat with Jesus and his disciples in the storm? The obvious answer is on the shore. It is much easier, much easier in this life, three score years and ten, or 50, or 40, or 90, whatever we have. It is much easier in this life to say no to the call to follow him and all that that entails, but in the life to come, in the world to come, and we get a glimpse of that here in Matthew 8, 9, and 10. If we say no to him now, the storm will hit us with a fury that will never end, and Jesus will not be there, and there will be no peace. So do not say no if Jesus is calling you. Do not ask him to leave. Don't opt for a life of ease now, the fleeting years of an earthly life, for an eternity without Jesus in the storm of God's judgment. The boat is Jesus' mission in the world. That is the safe place to be. But the wind is howling. 
and the waves are crashing over the boat. You can't see through the spray. You can't see 20 yards in front of you, let alone the other side of the lake. I always remember with Jen, when she went to Jen Margaret's, Jen Wright as she then was, when she went to Switzerland to learn French. It took her about 10 minutes. And she described to us how she didn't know what the future was. And it was a bit like a, a mist. And then through that gloom she saw, not Cameroon anymore, but Congo Brazzaville. And I wonder if she saw Richard Margaret through the mist. I don't think so. But she didn't know where she was going to go. The wind was howling. And that, I mean, I'm not breaching any confidence to say that Jen never, ever thought she would find anyone to marry. I mean, who would as a single white girl in Africa as a missionary? But she went. The wind is howling, the boat full of fishermen. They think it's all over. They would know they're fishermen. Where's their master? He's asleep. But he was asleep, verse 24. And they went and woke him and said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Why are you afraid of your little faith? I mean, just think of the scene. You know, there's waves up there and we're down here. They're fishermen. They're not like us, city sailors who go on cruises and stuff like that. They're fishermen in a storm. Jesus, save us, we are perishing. Why are you afraid? I mean, it's daft. Is he angry with them? No, he's just frustrated that they don't trust him. Why are you afraid? Or you have little faith. And I often think now at the end of our journey to find this home and all the rest of it, these words of the Lord Jesus, why did you think I wouldn't do it? Of course I was going to do it. Why are you so afraid you have little faith? I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go and talk to your mates about Jesus or ask them next weekend. Or maybe for some of you, get on a plane and go to the other side of the world. Or maybe just the first seeds for us as a church. Now that we've landed this plane. Is to begin to think about how another one can take off down the runway. Where these 180,000 people are living. Who this morning are twiddling their thumbs. Making daisy chains. Watching the telly. Not even up. Lost for all eternity in hell. Who's going to tell them? They're not going to come here. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And one day, what a glorious day it will be. There will be a great calm. And those with Jesus will be with him in the new creation forever. Lord Jesus, powerful, powerful passages in the gospel. Powerful, powerful passages. And we pray, Lord, that the authority of Jesus would shake us, shock us, comfort us, move us, inspire us, all of these things. If we're not yet in the boat with the Lord Jesus, by your grace, help us to step in and not mess about any longer.
with our questions or with our arrogance or with our lack of humility, but just get in because it's safe there for all eternity. And Lord, help us to hear the words of the Lord Jesus, those of us who are in the boat. Why are you so afraid? Look, I am with you in mission always to the very end of the age. All this we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.